Hello and welcome to the Story Toolkit. I'm Basim El-Wakil, co-author of Action, The Art of Excitement with Robert McKee, and joining me is Luke Lionel, writer and part of the McKee Storylogue team. So today we are going to talk about education stories, which is a, a genre I really like. Um, education stories are stories in which a character arcs from a meaningless view of life to a meaningful view of life. That's that's the education story. So it's a really uh, wonderful form. Um, it's the one that wins all the Oscars. It does. Do you know it does actually win Oscars a lot. <laughs> it yeah. does. Yeah. yeah, but it was a very specific. It was a flippant comment, but but a very specific what? kind of education story, which is the meaning of life comes from from abandoning material pursuits, uh, which is what extremely rich, glamorous people in Hollywood like to keep telling themselves. <laughs> um, yeah, you know they they say you have to abandon material pursuits to have meaning in life, and yet every year they have more material pursuits. They don't seem to be abandoning them. <laughs> Um, and they celebrate this by handing out giant gold statues. Yes, in incredible opulence situations, it's rather interesting, isn't we it? We rather quickly segue. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so um, yeah, the reason to talk about education stories is specifically is about how you dramatize internal conflict um, without being a novel <laughs> so in a novel you just say what they're feeling and that's that it's done right but um on stage you can get away with soliloquy but even on stage you have a problem um unless you're doing like one of those shows where there's no scenery at all you're just talking to the audience with word pictures you know um if, if you're on stage film comic book Generally, anything that's sort of got a visual element, you're going to invoke the real world, the external world. And so the question is, how do you dramatize the inner lives of characters when you aren't just literally writing down what they're thinking and feeling? Okay, I was going to say the problem here is on the nose. Yeah, how, how do you, yeah, like, how do you make it? So, provided, say you can write beautifully subtext uh, dialogue and speeches... Um, having a character just simply eloquently talk about how they're feeling um, isn't necessarily going to dramatize anything. It it might not be on the nose, but it might just be exposition. It, it, it doesn't necessarily... Focusing on just how you're going to use language to express the inner life of a character doesn't solve the problem of how to express the inner life of a character without language. Do you see what I'm yeah. saying? Um, like, that's that's what I'm trying to say. So like, I'm presuming, like, yeah, okay, you, you're you going to write stuff that isn't on the nose and isn't just exposition. But in stage, you can get away with a lot of dialogue. In film, you can have voiceover narration. It can work. But um, in not in the novel, all you have is language. It's the only... You don't have anything else. You only have language. So everything you choose to express is going to be through language, right? But if you're writing a comic book, if you're writing um, a, um, a play or a film, you have imagery that you can use. You have the visuals of the film. You have the visuals of the comic book. You have the stage. You have blocking. You can have silent moments of just movement, Okay. In a novel, if someone silently moves from one place to the other and you write it, you can also write how they're feeling and it doesn't stop being silent. But you can't have a character on stage 
move across the stage and talk about how they're moving across the stage. They're moving across the stage. You don't need to say it. So then how do you express the meaning that's going on in them? You see what I'm saying? I'm with you. So how do you express visually things that aren't visual? Okay. So the education story is all about a person's view of life. So it's very internal. And um, the nature of the education story then um, has to dramatize these things regardless of what medium it's being told in. You have to be able to dramatize all this internal conflict. And there are loads of beautiful films, as you pointed out, Oscar-winning films. Um, So what do you do? Well, if you look at the conventions of the education story, and there's a whole bunch, um, you have to have a teacher role. Uh, That might be the protagonist. It might not be the protagonist. um, But you can have a teacher um, that's... uh, The teacher is going to teach the character the meaning of life in some way. Um... They might be quite nice about it. They might be quite horrible about it. But um, it, that's the education. There's going to be the errand. I call it the errand. I call this the this little convention. Uh, somehow, somewhere in the story, the protagonists will be told, if you get this thing, you will have meaning. This will give your life meaning if you get this thing. Uh, get a job. Uh, get a girlfriend. Um, find God. Um etc 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 become famous whatever um you'll see when we talk about the errands and and the examples there's an errand the reason for this sometimes that thing they that's the thing they have to abandon to find meaning it's so it's leading them astray yeah sometimes it is actually what they need but um the point of the errand is to help the audience gauge how close they are and how far away they are from getting what they want. See, if I'm running a crime story, it's it's obvious how close I am <laughs> to catching the criminal, right? Once he's in cuffs, I got him. That's the end. <laughs> like, I got the guy. And you can tell as I'm getting clues, I'm getting closer. I'm getting closer to beating the bad guy in the action story. I'm getting closer to becoming president in a political drama. That kind of thing. I'm getting one step closer, one step closer. You can gauge, oh, they've gotten closer, they've gotten further away. How do you gauge someone is getting closer or further away from having a meaningful life? How do you do that? Well, you come. this is what the convention does, the errand convention. You basically say, this thing gives you meaning. Then as the character gets closer to that thing, if their life isn't becoming more meaningful, the audience can gauge that the life is becoming less meaningful. Um, and if they're getting close to it and they're becoming more meaningful, they can see, oh, they've almost got the meaningful life. Do you know what I mean? Um, that makes sense, right? It does. I'm with you. Okay. Take Uh, my silence as, as, um, as learning. (laughs) Okay, fine. Uh, right. So, um, yeah. So you have the errand. Um, you mentioned the teacher. Are there any other characters you would you would need other than the teacher? I mean, you need the guy who's you need the student. The student. That's it. There aren't any other characters uh, that are necessary to an education. <laughs> there are no other characters. All education stories have two. <laughs> yeah. No. They the they're not necessary. You can have all types of other characters that uh, lead the character astray or lead the character towards meaning, whatever. But um, those those are the key roles. Those are the sure. core roles. The other thing that, of course, has to happen in an education story is the character has to actually change and become someone who sees life as meaningful. That's a key convention of the story. It's the <laughs> core event. Um, in order to do that, the protagonist actually kind of needs two crisis moments. Um, they're not 
technically one isn't the crisis because by definition the crisis is the, is so the, the one the one big decision but the idea is is the character is, is given a actual true dilemma they go one way so that later on in the story they are given another true dilemma and they go the other way uh, the best example of this I think would be Tender Mercies where the character um, opens and he has chosen to go one way which is to drink himself he's hit rock bottom he's completely drunk uh, alcoholic, pissed away his career everything so he decides okay I'm going to fix my life now um but at the end of the film, at the climax, his daughter dies in a senseless, meaningless car crash for no reason at all. Uh, I believe the last thing he did was have an argument with her. And so now he has another choice, right? To drink himself back into the bottle. He chooses not to. We know he's changed. Sure. So... Is it important, do you think, to have the repetition of that um, that moment, to have them similar enough in order to highlight that change? Or... Is it again just a gauging thing? It's 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 a it's a it's it's down to the individual story and character. Sometimes you can literally have the exact same situation twice. Other times it can just be something else. Um, uh, there's a, a, a reason I, I ask. I guess is the the example that comes to mind is the Grey, which I bring up because yes. it's just what it's an, it's an incredible movie. But um, the Grey, by the way, is an education story. It's also an action story. Yeah. Um, obviously, you know, stories they merge and mix genres, and education a lot of the time is given another genre. So this is an action education story. Whilst immediately ruling itself out of any Oscar winning by being an action story, yes. it does make it exciting. Yeah. Um, but in that one at the beginning, you've got the character that puts a gun to his mouth, yes. and then at the end, it's not a gun to his mouth, but he's face to face with a wolf. With a wolf. Yes. Yeah. So in the in the in the begin in the um in the beginning of the uh, film, uh. The character, I think his name is Ryan Otley, if I remember right. Liam Neeson's character. I will, I will find that wolf. <laughs> um, Liam Neeson, uh, at the beginning of the film, we don't understand fully why. We think he, it's because his wife left him. Uh, he's about to kill himself. He's about to blow his brains out. He And he doesn't. Uh, he's stopped, right? Yeah. Uh, he gets distracted. Though, uh, I think because he's supposed to be looking out for wolves. And so he, his job takes over and it's like, okay... I'm not going to do it today. He he doesn't he doesn't do it because he finds a reason for living. He does it because it's just a bit cowardly and a bit in in the sense that he he can't go through with it. That's what I mean by cowardly. That's rather insensitive insensitive yeah. way of phrasing it. But anyway, um, but at the end of the film, um, Liam Neeson is face to face. You say with this alpha wolf, um, and he doesn't go quietly into that night. He bandages broken glass to his hands and keys and then f decides to fight the wolf to the death and the film cuts to black when he uh, charges the wolf we never see the fight and the reason being because what matters is that change in character yeah there's no way ryan otley at the beginning of the film would have fought the wolf he wouldn't have tried he just let let the wolf kill him but um over the course of the story uh, he has become someone who's willing to fight for life no matter what. So he's no longer suicidal. Uh, it's a huge change in that character's life. Uh, his life, even though it's, he thinks it's going to last another 30 seconds, <laughs> it's worth living. Um, so, yeah, so the, the, but the, that's the thing. It's like the, the suicidal scene at the beginning isn't what you would call really a crisis scene. But it does 
dramatise effectively that that character has made this choice under pressure, which is uh, to just sort of like uh, sleepwalk through life. Hmm. And at the end, he's decided to fight for life. So he's changed as a character. And so the education story has to do that. That's a convention of the education story. Uh, and then what you realise is when you have sub-genres of a, of, a, of a genre, these conventions shift the way you tell them. So in a crime story, you have, you have clues, right? But the point of view shifts the nature of cluing. So from the detective point of view, the clues, the, the detective is trying to uncover clues to find out who done it. But if you're a criminal, if you're telling the story from the point of view of the criminal, it's the reverse. They're trying to hide the clues. So when you watch like a, the crime story from the detective's point of view, you're like going, who did it? How did they do it? What does that clue mean? It was it that guy? But when you watch it from the criminal's point of view, you're like, no, he didn't put it. He didn't wipe his fingerprints off. He didn't do that. He didn't do that. Right? It's the same thing. You're going. You're finding all the clues, but in one sense, you're trying to expose them. The other one, you're trying to conceal them. Right? So the genre, the conventions remain, but they drastically shift. Uh, in action, depending on where you focus it, the villain shifts, and so as a result, the entire action story shifts. So with the education story, this is why I'm using the education story for this example, what shifts is the nature of um, how uh, the um, outward life of the character is used to express the internal meaning of what's going on in the character's life, right? his inner battle. And there's really two ways that this works. One way is what I would call the rife education story, the, the rife plot. Their life is full of bustle and activity. And what happens is the outward life of the character, their family, their job, all this changes drastically over the course of the story. And as it does, that is a reflection of what's going on inside them. So, for example, if a character's errand right, is to have a have a big, big career, okay, the closer they get to that career, you would start to notice whether or not that they are um, becoming more meaningful or less meaningful. As they have setbacks in their pursuit of the career, mm. that in turn dramatizes how they feel and how they view life, right? Yeah. So you're using the external world and uh, the uh, internal world to, to work for each other. The external world is helping you dramatize the internal world. And I'll come up with some... Uh, I'll go into this a bit more depth when we go to the examples. The other side of this is what I would call the rut, where actually the external world is almost completely static, but what's going on inside the character's mind is incredibly volatile and dynamic. And the reason the audience picks up on that is precisely because the outward world is so static they have to look deep in the character to find the story. Sure. Now, this is why when you see rut stories, people think nothing happened, right? Because they think, hold on, I'm looking at the visual world, I'm looking at the external world, nothing's changing, therefore nothing is happening. But actually, if you're observant, you realize there's a lot of change that's going on. Neither one of these is better than the other. The rut is minimalism almost every time like it, it's very minimalistic the rife is going to be much more classical so it's going to be more popular 
the Rife type of story. It's going to be a lot more popular because people can see it. It will have a closed ending. There'll be external conflict, so on. But The Rut is minimalistic, so it's much smaller. It's very internal. It might have an open ending. It's very subtle. Not to segue too much, but just picking up on what you said, do you think the Rife plots would... Um more easily find an audience because yes. there is that external classical story always tell um, classical uh, design has a bigger audience sure um, but uh, I mean these subgenres are, you know these are clear definitions for them but obviously like everything there's a spectrum here you know you can tell a crime story from a detective's point of view and a criminal's point of view at the same time you can have a detective who is a criminal that's the shield Right, he's a detective and criminal at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So I'm being very clear in the definitions, but that's not to say pick one and not the other. <laughs> uh, and also, if you read uh, in story, when McKee goes through the story triangle, you've got classical minimalism, anti-structure. He points out it's a spectrum that you can lie anywhere on. So if you can imagine the education story, uh, any education story can lie on that thing, and the closer they are towards minimalism, the more of the rut archetype they are and the close towards classical is the more of the rife and again these are the two sort of major ways to dramatize internal conflict through visual imagery yeah as opposed to i guess other types of imagery uh, <laughs> right so um and i'll give you some examples i guess right I'll do some examples yes yes okay so let's start with the rut okay so where the the outward world is really really static yeah. Nothing changes. Um, so here's actually a bit of an... is uh, uh, a really great one. Groundhog Day. Okay? For those of you... Uh, is this the first time Groundhog Day has ever been described as minimalist? It's, Groundhog Day isn't actually minimalist. No, I didn't think it was. It's not. So when I said... It, remember what I said? I said they arc towards these things, but that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Okay. So Groundhog Day, on the one hand, it's... Actually, Groundhog Day is kind of both... Now that I think about it, Groundhog Day is kind of both. This is a great, a great moment to pick up on. Yeah, no, I just realised that. <laughs> you see, I'm learning too. Uh, I'm fine with this. Actually, let's get. I'll tell you what. We'll get a Groundhog Day later because that okay. we, we were trying to come up when we were planning this. I was trying to come up with um, an example of an education story that is both at the same time. And now that I think about it, Groundhog Day actually is both at the same time. <laughs> Uh, so we'll we'll do Groundhog Day at the end. Okay. We'll do it okay. at the end. We'll talk about well, how you merge. Let's it. go back to the other end of the spectrum then. Okay. Well, to the rife. To the rife. Yeah. Okay. So an example of a rife education story would be the Oscar-winning <laughs> King's Speech, which was a beautiful story. King's Speech. King's Speech isn't just an education story. Um, it's also a performance story, and a performance story is, is a story about characters that um, are looking for respect. And um, performance stories are often sports stories, like Rocky. Uh, but also people putting on performances like Whiplash. Um, farces about people putting on plays, like Noises Off. Um, these are performances too. School of Rock. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, but, uh, School of Rock. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So the King's, <laughs> the King's Speech is a performance story as well. It's also a buddy story. But fundamentally, um, the King's Speech, what, what's happening is, at the beginning of the film, um, what's his name? Colin Firth, who's playing King George, his life is actually kind of meaningless. Because uh, he, he, he's the whole point of this character is he's the king. 
That's his whole reason for being. In our modern age, we kind of have a sort of bugbear of our monarchy because about monarchies because you know of how crazy they went in Europe. But I think people like Donald Trump have proven the virtue of a monarchy, which is there is something to be said about being taught from a child how to run a country, <laughs> right? Considering that, you know, we just had the vote here as well for Brexit and we voted to leave and then people went, wait, what does this even mean? And no one actually knows. It's just, there's a reason why you want a king, okay? Someone who's actually been taught how to run a country because it's so ridiculously difficult to do. So his whole life is he's the king. There's just one problem. He actually can't speak. He's got a horrible stutter, and as a result, he can't be king. And if he can't be king, he's nobody. Right? So his life is threatened with utter, utter meaningless. It's incredibly, incredibly painful for him. And he gets a speech therapist. And the speech therapist becomes his friend. And uh, it's really beautiful. And uh, he has to give a big speech about them going into World War II. <laughs> And that speech is what the nation needs for um, for the morale. And so uh, Colin Firth uh, d- delivers the speech. It's a be- I mean, the climax of this film is an uninterrupted retelling of a famous speech that aired on the radio in the 40s. You know what I mean? It's not like... Yeah. It's, and it's really beautiful. Did you see the King's Speech? I have, yeah. Yeah, it was a long, time, a long time ago. Yeah, it's but, really... Yeah. I love that. I love this film. Um... And it's excellent. So, so that's the synopsis, right? Just uh, before you go into the right thing, just to pick up yeah. on a couple of things again that you said earlier. Yes. Um, so, an example of the um, this is uh, correct me if I'm wrong. This is a, a good example again of the repetition of that yes. moment, is it not? Because at the beginning yes. he goes to give a speech and fails. Yes. And then at and the a end, really trivial thing. Yes. He gives it, he's supposed to give a trivial thing and he can't do it and everyone mocks him and laughs him and that's that's part of the performance thing. He's ashamed. Yeah. He's his life is pointless. He can't be king. It's meaningless. He has no one. He has no <laughs> friends. No one no one no one to care for him. And at the end he has at the end you have this beautiful moment, this absolutely beautiful moment where he's given the speech. So he, he pulled it off. He's the king. Everyone loves him. And his best friend who helped him through this is standing to the side out of the limelight, just smiling. And I'm just like, that's so beautiful because, he, you know, he's... There's, you just reminded really me, actually, it was such a long time ago I saw that, but isn't there a be- like a really tense moment when he goes to give that speech? There's an enormous pause yes. before he starts. Yes. Huge. Yes. <laughs> is he actually going yes. to start talking? Yes. Uh, yeah, it's excellent. Um but yeah, so at the beginning he has this trivial speech that he messes up, and at the end he gives the most important speech in like British mm. history or something. And also you've got the the, the teacher character which you mentioned, which earlier, is Jeffrey Rush. Yeah, which is Jeffrey Rush. He's, he's wonderful. Um, uh, and there's the errand, um, and the, that was the one I was going to ask. Yeah, the errand. The errand is the speech. Yeah, and it's sure. not a counterpoint. <laughs> right? He actually has to give the speech. You could now, you for example, you could take just to. Explain, what I mean by the errand element of this a lot of times it would be for Oscar winners he if he gave up trying to be the great speech writer then yeah. he gets meaning but in this one's like no actually his meaning is related to being able to be king <laughs> like he actually has to do it so it doesn't have to be um, ironized the yeah. errand but anyway so um, yeah but his, this character his as you heard from the synopsis 
his outward life is rife with conflict and change. Uh, I mean, he he goes from someone who is sort of a an, a cultural embarrassment to someone who has to lead his country in war. <laughs> right? <laughs> he goes from someone who has no friends to someone who has an incredibly close friend. So he has enormous changes in in his outward life. His life is is rife about as big a changes as you could write for a character surely. Yes. Yeah. you're a king. There yeah, you go. That's Where'd it, you go right? from there? So and and of course so the errand as I pointed out the errand is very external. So all of this and so what we do is as we're watching the film is as he's encountering all these obstacles in life the meaning, the internal conflict, is dramatized by his nature to the to the reaction of those things. Those things create enormous reactions, and we get an insight into that character. And of course, one of the conventions of the education story will be things like the speech, right? The speech of how I'm feeling right now. You know, the the um, the existential soliloquy. You get all kinds of existential soliloquies in education stories all the time, mm. and so you get these things where they get motivated by all these outward things. Then you have a quiet moment where the character finally says something about, you know, what they feel and all this stuff. So it's constantly, um, juxtaposed, counterpointed, resonating all the time. The two are working in tandem all the way through it. The focus is on the, the internal change, but in order to dramatize that conflict is used from all over the place. Right, that would be the rife. So, um, uh, okay. So mm. back to the other end. The other end. The other end. The rut. The rut. Okay. What do we put down for the rut? Well, we put down Groundhog Day. Oh, but we're going to go with about you, Schmidt. You immediately cancelled that. I, yeah, I really. Um, about pretty, Schmidt then is pretty Schmidt. towards the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. So about Schmidt um, is a really beautiful film starring Jack Nicholson as Warren Schmidt, and it opens with him uh, retiring. He's got forced retirement. Uh, it's just something that has to happen. He's an actuary. Uh, and so he, for life insurance, and he re- is retired. He retires. He has a retirement party. And there's this beautiful thing where like for the first few scenes of the film, he doesn't say anything. Everyone's talking to him, but he doesn't say a word. Uh, he's just smiling and nodding, going through it. Uh, then um, he goes back uh, he's trying to get used to retirement, but he can't. You know, he wakes up at the same time uh, of a work day. He actually goes to the office to try and like uh, pass on some knowledge and things. I think if I'm right, Jason Sudeikis is the guy who replaces him. I might be wrong. Um, no, not Jason Sudeikis. The guy who plays Floyd in Thirty Rock. Doesn't matter. Anyway, <laughs> um, he comes home. His wife has passed away. His wife, by the way, he's he. he there's this wonderful bit where he says, "I don't know." who my wife I don't know who this old woman in my bed is anymore like he doesn't recognize his wife almost because she's so old she yeah. just, he doesn't recognize but actually this is very important he has nothing to do he he's he, he has zero in his life at the moment he has nothing to do and he hasn't spoken for the, the film right he hasn't spoken and the first time you hear him speak he's watching on TV one of those ads for um, adopting a child in the third world so he decides to adopt the child, and it says you should write them a letter. So he sits down, he starts writing a letter, and then you hear Jack Nicholson's voiceover as he writes the letter. So you hear what he's writing, which is a beautiful way to ex- show what he's writing. And he goes, Dear Ndugu. 
That's the name of the kid. Dear Ndugu. And he starts writing a very polite letter. And then <laughs> he just starts venting about how everyone he hates. And it's hilarious. All this pent up anger. All this, all this stuff comes flooding out of him in this letter. Uh, and that's when he says like. I don't know who this old woman in my bed is anymore. And then, but his wife passes away. Uh, he has the funeral. He's not really affected by it, which is quite funny. He doesn't really. He's not really that upset. Uh, he's then he does get upset about it. His daughter is marrying a total loser. That he's very upset that his daughter's marrying this loser. Um, he he's going through his wife's stuff. Uh, they bought a giant Winnebago together. She passed away before they could do anything with it. He's going through his wife's stuff. He finds out his best friend had an affair with his wife and then uh, so he decides to go on a massive road trip all the way across America to where his daughter's getting married he gets to where his daughter is he wants to stop her from marrying she refuses to listen to him they have the wedding he gives a very nice speech and he goes home after all this he goes home and he goes I'm alone I'm an actuary so I know how long statistically I have left to live it's a few years that's it I'm a failure nothing's worked right and all the way through this, he's been writing letters to that African kid. And uh, when he gets home after this huge trip, he finds a letter from the kid. And he reads the story, uh, reads this letter. And the kid is just like, thank you so much for helping me. I had an operation. I'm fine now. He's very sad to hear that things aren't going well for you, but he hopes things are going well for you now and things are better. He's really appreciative. All this stuff. And then it just cuts to Jack Nicholson's face, who is does this beautiful moment where he's just crying and smiling. Jack Nicholson did this film for, I think, almost no money at all. Yeah, I heard this. I think he might have done he, it for free. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is how the film got made, because he came across the script, and I'm guessing he came across the script, and he, that ending moment is why he wanted to do it, because he just... It's a beautiful, beautiful moment. But, um, so Schmidt's his own teacher. The kid doesn't teach him. He teaches himself through those letters. But he's in a rut. Because if you actually look at it, very little actually happens. He, the daughter marries the guy. Uh, he, he's retired at the beginning of the film. He's still retired at the end. He doesn't find love. His wife... I mean, he goes on this big road trip, but nothing happens on the road trip, really. He has these little incidental adventures... Um, the the wife um, dies. That's the thing, but it's actually we don't get a sense of how that, that doesn't have a big sense of a big thing. It's just like it's just a thing that happens. Mm. And so the outward world of this character, um, if you compare it to the King's Speech, do you see what I mean by how small and insignificant these events are? Like he he doesn't um, he doesn't stop his his daughter's wedding. She just gets married. They just have some arguments here and there. It's it's um, it's really very very little that happens on the ex. If you just took away all the internal conflict from that film and just looked at the external conflict, there's almost nothing there. Right? Hmm. Can you just imagine? Imagine if I took out the bit, take out the letters from with Ndugu. There's no story. Because the story's all inside. Internal. It's all inside. And how can we... And as I tell you that story, how can you tell what's going on in Schmidt's heart? Because what's going on the front is so... It's, you see, static is the wrong word because it implies nothing is happening at all. Like, everything's... But rut, I prefer the word rut because it's just that sort of... 
there's a lack of focus. It's just kind of like on an even keel. Things are happening, but they're not really rocking the boat. And because that's so um, so min- minimal on the outside, you have to look inside to the character to see what's going on. And you see inside him, as he expresses through his letters and things, you see this guy is completely and utterly miserable. Um... There's, there's, and the thing is, like, a lot of it is done through um, him writing letters, right? Which would be language. Yeah. But actually, huge amounts of this is done visually, such as the very beginning of the film, where mm. he doesn't say anything. So when he starts writing the letter, the pressure cooker comes off, right? We know, we already know, before he writes the letter, everything he writes in the letter. We already know he hates everyone. We already know all of that stuff. It's just that when it comes out in that way, the, di- the it's written so beautifully. Uh, also, I'm I'm guessing again. Yeah. It's been a year since I saw this, but I'm guessing visually there are clues as he's writing those letters. Certainly, the difference between him writing that first letter and then reading the last one. You described that beautiful yeah. moment at the end where he's crying yeah. and he's he's smiling at the same time. Yes. Um, but at the beginning, as he's writing that letter and he's talking for the first time. Yeah. I mean, is he writing it angrily? I can't yeah. imagine. Oh yeah, you see Jack smart. Nicholson like he's a, he's, yeah. he's a growling and grimacing. It's really funny. Um, yeah, it's hugely visual. And of course, the end of the film, he he doesn't at the end go, "Dear Undugu, thank you. I'm really happy now." Like, okay, yeah. it's it, so. But you you don't need that moment. Yeah, do you? I mean, when you think about when I say like how it's a rut and how little is happening externally. The power of him getting a letter. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. The King's Speech, he gives this enormous speech and has applause from a nation. <laughs> That's the climax to the King's Speech. And from that, we work, we infer the meaning that this has for King George. Warren Schmidt comes home, junk mail everywhere, opens one letter, reads it, balls like a baby... And in a way, you might think, actually, this is even more profoundly meaningful than the King's Speech. Do you <laughs> see what I mean? Yes. And the way, the, the reason is, by, because you've reduced the conflict on one level, it's maximised on the other. Um, and also and because it's written so beautifully. And this is why we talk about the spectrum as opposed yes. to... yeah. Because uh, it's a question of focus as opposed right. to exactly. something else. I have a question. Yes. The errand... I have two oh, about Schmidt. Actually, I have two questions, but let's start with let's start with this. Yeah, the errand in about Schmidt. The errand in about Schmidt is amazing. Uh, at his retirement party, his friend, who turns out to have <laughs> adultery yeah. with his wife, says basically li- make, gives a list of the things that you need to have a meaningful life. Oh, I see. He right. literally gives him the thing, and he goes like, "These are the things that make a man's life worth living." And Warren, your life is worth living. <laughs> That's the, the, the very beginning of the film. And as he says that, Jack Nicholson just smiles, you know, nods like that. And you get the sense of like, he doesn't believe a word of this. And then he gets up, goes to the bar and orders vodka and drinks alone. <laughs> right? And you go, okay. So that sets up immediately. Those things are not what's going to give him meaning. Okay. We know he has those things and he doesn't have a meaningful life. What will give his life meaning? So, so the, as we're watching the film, he's you see Schmidt doesn't know. He's desperately wrestling to try and work out what will give him a meaningful life, and nothing is going to do it. Ruining his daughter's wedding won't give him a meaningful life because she's still going to marry the guy. Yeah, 
help, supporting a threat doesn't give his life meaning. Nothing is giving his life meaning. And finally, at the end, when he realizes uh, how how important he was to Ndugu's life, because that's the thing he realizes there's no point. I'm a failure. At the end, though, when he sees, he can't deny the impact he had on Ndugu. Sure. That he's just a good thing in Ndugu's life. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's it's interesting for a story to 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 use that convention where you need to um, uh, give a, you, the way you worded it earlier. Um, it allows the audience to gauge where the right. where the story where where the boundaries are. Yeah, but to start a story with here are the boundaries and you know screw you. Yeah, let's yeah. move away from well, that now yeah, because that's the, because Schmidt goes on a um, on a road trip and stuff, and there's sort of an exploratory element to what he's doing. The point is, we're sitting there wondering, well, what will give this guy, what will make this guy happy, you what think- will give him contentment? And at the very beginning, by so so clearly pointing out, he has everything, and he's at the end of his life. So what's left? So we are left searching with him. Yeah, for that means exactly, and draws us into empathy with him and so on. It's yeah. just a brilliant design. Um, not that they would have articulated it the way I have, but <laughs> you know what I mean. It's yeah, just yeah. anyway. Uh, but the, the the second question I had, which is probably answered now, but you you mentioned earlier, um, uh, just very briefly, that the errand for King's speech was external. Yes, and it just got me thinking about whether there was um, um, basically if there is something at the other end of that spectrum and having internal yeah. errands. Yeah, you could have like an uh, one of the errands might be you have to find faith in God. Sure. Okay. That would be an internal errand. Um, that would that might or may not be the case. I mean, generally, if you uh, you could have a character that's and that would be like okay well how do you that would, immediately the audience would start going like well the more pious the character is the more meaningful sure, his sure. life should be it's just a goal for your character then. it's it's what it, the point of it is if you if you took out the errand from the story the audience will not know what the spine of action is they won't be able to see it yeah they won't be able to gauge they go okay i get he's trying to be happy but they won't be able to tell he's happier sadder than he was in the they can't tell progression it becomes binary and repetitive so you have that thing and it helps the audience picture the the story in front and then of course you can do all kinds of crazy things with it and you can upturn it change it as we'll see in uh, another example well let's go to another example that's a good moment um, up in the air yeah up in the air up in the air is exactly that so his errand is the seven mile no the seven million seven million mile club yeah Um, so Up in the Air is a story where George Clooney plays a character whose name I've forgotten it's a really good film Up in the Air uh, his job not good enough for you to remember the character name I really have forgotten the character <laughs> um, his job is to fire people <laughs> for other companies companies hire him to come in and fire their employees this is that's one of his those, job his job in that movie is one of those wonderful um, Chuck Palahniuk has a way of doing this in his stories as well just giving the character something so bizarre and unusual it just instantly you're like how how would that work do people yeah. do this job yeah. like my god they, they I want to know about this uh, yeah <laughs> and by, by the way Up in the Air is also a, an enterprise story an enterprise story is where a character is like the money pit how I Bought a Zoo, uh, right? Where Ghostbusters, where they have like a business that they're trying to do it, and the value is worth and worthlessness, yeah. which is different to meaning but very similar. Which is where the how the Seven Million Mile Club 
fits into it, doesn't it? Uh, well, no, the Enterprise story for him is his job. Because he fires people for a living, and he's going to be going, um, and he gets on this plane, and he has to fly everywhere. Yeah. And he flies so much that he's going to get the 7 million miles club, which is something like, uh, or is it just a million miles, and he's number seven? Something like that. Oh, it's a million yeah. miles. It's and a million miles, and he's the seventh person. person. Yeah, so yeah. less, as he says, less people have walked on, more people have walked on the moon. That's right. right? That's right. Uh, and so, what happens is, uh, I believe it's, I, is it Ellen Page? No, it's not Ellen Page. An actor, some actress. I've forgotten her name. It's good. Anyway, she shows You're up. On fire for. I know. Point, yeah. She shows up, and uh, her uh, model is Anna she's, Kendrick. Thank you, Anna Kendrick. That's it. Anna Kendrick shows up and basically she gives the company George Clooney works for this thing where they can fire people over Skype. And this has upset him no end because he's basically been fired from his own job, right? His job to fire people is now obsolete. It can be done by anyone in a Skype conference thing. And, um, and it also means that even if he keeps his job, he won't get the Million Miles Club now. So, the George Clooney's character has to prove that firing people... He's taking Anna Kendrick along with him to show how they do it, how they fire people face-to-face, so she can set up the interface and the flow chart and everything better. But he's kind of trying to prove to her and his company that you can't replace him with a computer screen. It has to be done face-to-face. So you have this really bizarre thing, right? So on the one hand, there's a worth thing. He's trying to prove the value of his job. But one of the reasons he's proving the value of his job is because he draws enormous meaning from the fact that he's about to get the Million Miles Club. And the errand for Up in the Air is, of course, getting the million miles. Yeah. Keeping his job. That's the errand. And uh, we know this is so trivial. The Million Miles Club. Like he, the way he overstates how important it is shows you how trivial it yeah. really is. So we know that's not going to give him meaning. Something else has got to give him meaning. And we think it's going to be um, this woman that he meets uh, who he falls in love with. And she's the teacher. Yes. Uh, however, as the story progresses, it turns out she's married. Such a wonderful turn as it's well. It's a when horrible he goes, turn. Because he... Yeah. Because... He takes the plunge, doesn't he? And he, he flies does. to her, turns he flies up at her to doorstep. Her. He's accepted he's losing his job. Yeah. He's accepted that the million miles thing doesn't matter. She's become the meaning of his life. Yeah. And we've As seen an or- this a thousand times. I know. Yeah, that's why it's such a great term because and he gets to, yeah. this to be the moment. And he gets to her house and he knocks on the door and she won't let him in. She stands in front of the door, closes the door behind her and you hear her family on the inside and she's like, it was just a bit of fun. Yeah. That is a teacher character, but not a particularly nice one. Uh, because what she taught him was his life is completely meaningless. His life is utterly trivial. His job is ridiculous. His desire, And then when he flies back, he actually gets the Million Miles Club. And he's sitting there. And he's got the thing. And we know it's... And he's just sitting there. It's like, this, this is just... He's yeah. so heartbroken. It doesn't matter. And at the end of the film, he's, he's decided he's just going to go out looking for meaning. He's given up on his career. He's given up. He's going to go and do that. And we have a sense of hope for him that even if he doesn't end up fully satisfied, he's in a better place than he was at the beginning. Yeah. 
he's he's um he's 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 understood that knowing your life <laughs> was trivial is actually a form of meaning and so he's got something to hold on to now um and so it's really wonderful this film and um that is a good example of not getting the errand right not it's achieving exactly, that goal exactly or, or rather sorry not finding meaning from achieving that yeah goal. It, it, it turns out uh, that's all wrong that of course and also a good example of the teacher not being a nice person yeah or helping them that they don't teach them something lovely they yeah. just teach them something really harsh such a great i really enjoyed that movie yes excellent um and of course as i point out that's closer towards the rife because his i mean his his life drastically changes yes outwardly over the course of the story but even though what's happening is quite drastic, it's very trivial. And so uh, we get the sense that, like, because it's so trivial on the outward, even though it's drastically changing a lot, what's happening is so trivial. We look inwards to see what's going on inside Clooney. Clooney, not character name. Not character name. I can't, <laughs> I can't remember his name. He has no name. Okay, then if we're looking at Spectrum, did you want to go to Groundhog Day? Because that's that's both of them you said? Yeah, so Groundhog Day is actually kind of a mixture of the two. So on the one hand, um, it's rife, okay? Uh, Groundhog Day is... Before we go into this quick synopsis, Groundhog Day. Okay. Groundhog Day is a story <laughs> about Phil Connors, uh, and it is the greatest film ever made. Oh, Phil, you remember... Yeah, I remember Phil Connors. Look, when I watch Up in the Air five times in a row in one day, then yes, I'll remember the character's name. So Phil Connors um, is a curmudgeonly weatherman who goes to Punxsutawney, PA to recover the Groundhog Day for the seventh year in a row, and he thinks he has no career uh, because he, he this is the last time he's going to do the Groundhog. And he gets to Punxsutawney, and he wakes up, Six in the morning, and his "I got you, babe" on his radio, uh, in the rubbish. Well, it's actually really cute, but uh, he hates this small town um, hotel thing that he's in. And he goes. He covers the Groundhog Festival. He's then desperate to leave Punxsutawney as quickly as possible, but a blizzard comes along, and he's really annoyed because he's the weatherman, and he said the blizzard wasn't going to hit Punxsutawney, but the blizzard hits Punxsutawney, and so he's trapped in Punxsutawney. He wakes up the next day at 6am to I got you babe and then realises he's stuck in Groundhog Day and it just keeps repeating the same day again and again and again and he starts to lose it. He tries killing himself. He kills himself many times but he keeps waking up the next day at 6 in the morning and he's, uh, he starts losing. He doesn't know what to do. Um, his and no one remembers every day it resets and it's just him who remembers that he's still stuck in ground day so he spends it seems like years upon years upon years like he spends six months learning just how to throw cards into a hat he spends six months just learning how, how do you do. know he spends six months because that's what he says oh right <laughs> he's, he's throwing cards in a hat and Rita his producer played by Andy McDowell says you're so good at this. How come he goes spend six year six months uh, every day, ten hours a day? You'll be a pro, right? <laughs> so it, he he amass he learns to play the piano. He learns to do ice sculpting. Um, it's it's not clear just how long he spends in Groundhog Day, but it seems it's, it 
an enormous amount of time, to the point where he knows everything about the town. He knows everybody, he knows everything that's going on, and he doesn't know what to do. And Rita, his producer, in, he, try, he tries to sleep with Rita, it doesn't work. You know, he, at first he's very hedonistic, then he's very suicidal. Then he finally starts confiding in Rita. In one of the days, he explains to her what's actually going on. He convinces her, she believes him. And this is why Rita is the teacher character, because Rita says, you know, to look at it like it's a blessing almost, because he has eternity and he can do all kinds of nice things and for people and stuff. And he wakes up the next day and he says, yeah, but the problem is I wake up tomorrow and you're going to think I'm a jerk. Uh, And she goes, no, I don't. He goes, it's all right, I am a jerk. And he wakes up the next day. She's not there. She doesn't remember anything. But he decides to just do the best that he can. He improves himself. He learns how to do things. Um, And then at the end of the film... Learns how to do things for other people. Yeah. Yeah. And learns how to play piano and things like that. And at the end of the film, um, he... It has become the most popular, beloved guy in Punxsutawney because he spends the whole day helping everybody. So everyone knows Phil Connors. So at the end of the uh, end of the day, Rita goes to this big bachelor charity auction, and Phil Connors is one of the bachelors, and everyone is bidding. She bids and beats him. She really likes Phil because of the kind of person he's become. Um, but more importantly, she's already wowed by him earlier on and she asks to spend the day with him and he says no and he goes off and does all his errands so Phil's changed drastically because at the beginning of the film Phil only cared for himself and didn't even really like himself and at the end of the film he's passing up Perita to help strangers and so uh, she wins him at the auction she goes back to the hotel with him they don't sleep together he wakes up the next day, six in the morning. I got you, babe, is playing. But then a hand reaches over and turns off the clock and goes, it's too early. And Rita's in there and he realizes tomorrow has happened. And he kisses her and they decide to live in Punxsutawney. And uh, <laughs> that's the film. It's beautiful. Um, but so on the one hand, it's 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 a rut. <laughs> Literally, literal. Rut. Literally, he's. It's the same thing every time. Nothing changes. That's the whole problem, Phil. Nothing, nothing changes. But as you pointed out, it's got enormous extra personal conflict because the uh, constant shifting of the days. He has this enormous cast to interact with. All these things that are going on. So there's enormous extra personal conflict. That's also very classically designed. There's a clear closed ending to it. Mm. So on the one hand, it's kind of both, and so. Um, the story uh, dramatizes. Co- see, because it's a comedy, you can't get too deep into Phil Connors. See, one of the conventions of the education story is the protagonist is multi-dimensional. He's not like action where he has one or two dimensions, maybe three, uh, if you're really pushing it three. Yeah. Right? But um, in education story, Phil Connors is four. He's four-dimensional and he's a comedy character, um, and. They can't go too deep into Phil. So you can't go fully into the rut. But at the same time, um, if if it's too much on the extra person thing, his meaning, the meaning won't be there. So the, the way it's kind of interesting, because it keeps repeating the same day, you get the effect of the rut, which is that static element of you have to look inside the character because nothing outside the character is changing. Yeah. So because it's the same day, what changes is Phil. 
Phil is constantly changing throughout the story. So the nature of his character is changing is dramatized because he's literally always seeing the exact same day every time. But the world he's inhabiting is so big and so clear that it generates lots of external conflict that allows you to dramatize how he's feeling in reaction to all the events that keep going on. Sure. I mean, the biggest event being he's trapped in the same day. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, you, you you outlined it in the synopsis, but yeah. how he goes from hedonistic to yeah. suicidal. Right. To... Yeah, and in fact, the film, the what's interesting, uh, the errand, Phil is constantly saying, well, I need this, I need that, I need a career. I need, um, I'm just going to enjoy myself in this, I'm going to do this. What we realise, though, of course, is because it's got Andy McDowell in it. <laughs> we know what he needs is love. We can tell by convention. He needs to... Uh, not just love in the sense of uh, love of a woman. He needs to be able to love. Because at the beginning, he hates everybody. He's mean to everybody. He's Bill Murray, so he's very funny, but he's mean and horrible and sarcastic to everybody. And we realise he doesn't even like himself. Does he ever explicitly get that errand? Or is it is it his the fact that he gets all these other things and it doesn't work? The, well, no, that's the thing. Like we 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 he says I want this, I want that. We know that's not it. He the errand keeps changing, sure. in that sense. It's or other. It's just one big list. Um, but the whole point is because the day keeps resetting. We know it can't be anything material. It yeah. can't be a tangible thing. So immediately and we go well what, what's he got to get what's well, got to be Andy as McDowell. an audience do we do we instantly then search inwardly for that yeah if we know it's, it can't we, be external yeah as soon as soon as that as soon as uh, we realise he's trapped in Groundhog Day and um, there's actually there is a point where Phil literally says you know uh, what, to Rita what do you look for in a guy and she says he's got this 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 she literally gives him a list and then he goes okay I'm really close on that one. And she goes, well, what, do you, what about you? What do you look for in a woman? He goes, what I'm looking for is you, right? He's insincere at this moment in a way, yeah. but at the same time, there it is. Right. R- right there. Is that the scene in the cafe? Yeah. yeah. When you say the scene in the cafe. The scene. <laughs> there are, there are one several. One of the scenes in the cafe. There are several no, scenes. No, there, there, there's, a, there's a particular one. I don't know the film letter for letter like you do on the page, but... Um, I really I know this film so well. Yeah, I know, I know uh, the scene you're talking about. But yeah, so yeah, Groundhog is actually an example of of the two of two working together. But so yeah, does it make you happy that Groundhog Day? Does it feel like it's legitimized Groundhog Day for you? I am incredibly happy about this. Actually, <laughs> uh, it's a you can't see this, but uh, you've I, been grinning since the moment you said Groundhog Day. I yeah, I really love this film. Um. Okay, question then. Yes. What do we take away from our own writing? What we take away from our own writing is how do you dramatise internal conflict? Um, if you go towards the minimalistic view, you risk an audience, and it means that you're going to have a very sort of static external world. But by doing so, you're inviting the audience to go into a highly volatile internal world. Or you simply vary the conflict by putting it on multiple levels of life keeping the focus on the internal thing. So that's the thing that changes, that's the most important change. But you have an external world that is sort of metaphorically or allegorically or just resonating, counterpointing, juxtapositioning. And neither one is better than the other. They're just they're just tools. You, If you're going to express the inner life through visuals, 
The only way you can do this is either by keeping the visuals very static so the audience has to look inside the character so they know not to be distracted by the visuals. They have to look inside and so you, you're very subtle or you use the visuals to express what's going on internally. And it's just a, it's a question of taste, isn't it? A yeah, of it's choice. a question of choice. What what's best for the character? Um, what's best for you as a writer? What's be, what you, you what you find more, more interesting? Um, what if you're running a film? What your actors are capable of? I mean, if you have actors that aren't, you know, you see, Groundhog Day uh, is a comedy with Bill Murray. Bill Murray did another uh, rut education story, Lost in Translation. Of course, right? Lost yeah, in translation is tiny. It's absolutely t- nothing. Literally, nothing happens. Yeah, he meets a girl, and nothing happens. They have a kind of friendship. You think maybe is it going to be a romance? It's not a romance. They just have a friendship, and then they leave. I think they kiss once, right? That's it. It's barely a love story, right? Barely a friendship story. Um, barely an education story. <laughs> Almost nothing happens in it, right? But in the what's so wonderful about Lost in Translation is because it's so so um, ephemeral on that level. You have to you every single gesture Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson do, you look at with ten times more meaning than if it was like the King's Speech. Which is why at the climax of the movie, when you don't even hear what he says, when he right. whispers in her ear, yes. you search deep for that meaning. Right, you're, 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 you're trying to read it from their body language. Sure. And everything. So if you're going to do a film or a play... See, if you're doing a film, you need actors who can act like that in order to do a rut story. You couldn't do it with people who can't do that thing. Now, Bill Murray is an excellent actor, so he can do it. Scarlett Johansson, this is why she's got a career, because of this film, Lost in Translation, right? She was able to pull off all the little touches that she needed to do, the subtext, all that stuff was there. So actors love this stuff, (laughs) right? But audiences, if they're not willing to go along with it, or audiences aren't in the right frame of mind, the audience is just smaller, because it's so not visual in that sense. Yeah. Um, if you're doing theatre, you have a problem because those kind of subtle movements you can't do on stage because the audience is so far away. Yeah. So then you have to use something else. So the idea is if you're trying to express the internal life uh, without just using language, and uh, as I say, if you're not writing a novel or doing the radio play, even the radio play has sound effects. You yeah. know, Outside of the novel, you are not just using words you've got all kinds of things even if you're doing a one-man show it's just you standing there in front of a thing you're there yeah you can use gestures in your hands and everything so as soon as that happens the question is how do you dramatize invisible things and the only two ways is either you use the visible world to um express what's going on internally in sort of a symbolic thematic way juxtapositioning counterpointing resonating reaction and action or you keep the visuals um, you, you keep the visuals so static that the audience has to look inward to the character and they have to start seeing the invisible in that sense because you're pointing out the visible stuff nothing you're not going to see anything there you're going to get hints in the visible stuff but you have to go deep 
into the character's thoughts, you have to get into real empathy, mm. which means you need actors who are capable of generating empathy. You need really multi-dimensional characters. And um, this is why when people adapt novels, they have that kind of problem. Because if those characters are multi-dimensional in the novel and um, and the characters, uh, the story's taking place entirely in their head, how do you film that? How do you get an actor to express that? Because it's not meant to be expressed that way. It's meant to be expressed in language. So if you're going to change that, you have to stop and go, okay, how am I going to do this? Yeah. That's why I, I, it, would that be why the uh, voiceovers are common in adaptations? And they're the laziest way because they're just exposition. Yeah. Um, but when it's done beautifully, like in About Schmidt, that has voiceovers. Beautiful. Oh, I see. When voiceovers are done. Yeah, if it's not a crutch, yeah. it's great. Yeah. So, um, and the education story is just a really good example of how you do that. I mean, the artist is an education story where there's no speaking. Yeah. It's all visual. Yeah. Um, but then it's very rife with extra conflict. Yes. It's not very, uh, it's not, it's not a rut. It's very rife. I was just entertaining the thought of whether you could do um, uh, a kind of rut story with purely visuals, but I think that would be too much to ask of an audience, wouldn't it? Well, I'm sure you could do an education I mean, story. anything's possible, but that, I mean, that'd be hard work to watch, wouldn't it? What? So something that minimalistic, like a, a rut story told entirely without dialogue. Uh, yeah, but I'm sure it's been done. <laughs> I'm sure I've seen something like that. Yeah? Yeah, I'm sure I have. Um, it, it, it's, it, but you need you need um, really great actors and... Um, <laughs> and to be a great writer. Yeah, you have, to, you have to know how to express meaning through very small, subtle visual cues. Yeah. Um, without... Yeah, so... It, that, but basically, yeah, that's the thing to realise. Because, like, obviously, internal conflict, not just in the education story, but in anything, uh, sometimes it's merged. You know, we had the action education stories, but you get maturation stories, degeneration stories like um, Breaking Bad, yeah. right? You get all these kinds of stories, particularly people who want to write TV. They want to dramatise the inner lives of their characters. And Breaking Bad has no voiceovers, right? So how do you do that? TV budgets are very small. You're typically stuck in a set, so... TV stories kind of want to lend themselves to ruts. They kind of Maybe. do, right? Uh, obviously, that doesn't mean they they do. Breaking Bad isn't. I mean, no. Breaking Bad isn't even an education story anyway. But um, as an example of yeah, internal conflict, an example of how they dramatize internal conflict, um, it's all done with these enormous external changes. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's just a question of where you want to do it, how how you want to do it. But that's but the education story is just a really good place to look at it because um, I love the education story. <laughs> I, I thought that would be a nice place to talk about it. Anyway, okay, good. Okay, uh, see you next week.